music, beautiful music. Folks, uh, we are in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18 in 2020. I'll begin by reading our passage as we return to the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 18. A ruler questioned Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Well, if you've persevered along with the rest of us since January of last year, January 2019, uh, I applaud you, if you're still here with us, for you have endured a very challenging section of Scripture, Luke chapter 12 through 18. And this is because since chapter 12, Jesus has repeatedly antagonized that portion of his audience who, who exhibits an unbridled affection toward wealth. In chapter 12, Jesus began by describing a farmer who tore down his barns and built bigger ones in order to store all of his excess that he was going to enjoy. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus urges us to use our money uh, in this life to win friends. To win friends with our, with our money, win friends with gospel, evangelizing, money that supports ministry, so that we will be welcomed into their eternal dwellings. Remember that sermon? So we'll be welcomed into their eternal dwellings, uh, those of our converts, in the next life. We're also told that we can't serve both God and money. We then observed the eternal destinies of the rich man and, and poor Lazarus. And throughout the last six chapters, Jesus has time and again returned to this same topic of money, urging us, as in Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to charity, making yourselves money belts which do not wear out. And then in Luke 14, 33, Jesus told large crowds, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. Admittedly, these are difficult lessons, aren't they? Challenging lessons uh, for people who live in a culture really saturated with materialism. That's the culture we live in. Saturated with stuff. Uh, today we heard during our scripture reading the Apostle Paul, he was preparing young Timothy to expect that, that many would not endure such teaching. And being lovers of money as they longed for it, 1 Timothy 6.10, they would depart from the faith and thereby pierce themselves with many griefs. 
So the love of money, it's spiritually perilous as we will see in our text today. You've probably heard, as, as I surely have, people who claim that, uh, that they lament. They lament when they hear churches talk about money. They don't want to hear it discussed, especially repeatedly discussed. And they take a hands-off attitude, just, just hands-off my bank account interpretation of Scripture. And, and I probably don't need to correct that misconception because after the past year in Luke, well, probably none of those people remain here. Jesus has been talking about money again and again. But, but not, now knowing our topic today, and before yourself you might make an early retreat for the door, let me, let me draw attention to just a couple things. Just a couple things. Uh, it's a value for our newest visitors. We mention this time, uh, time to time. And, and it's important to repeat this, that as pastors... We make no attempt to monitor individual giving at this church. That doesn't suggest our eyes won't cross a donation from time to time as it's handed to us or somehow or another something given, but we don't monitor individual giving. That would be impossible to do anyhow because a lot of people give cash or online and many different mediums. Jesus says, let your giving be done in secret. We don't want to jeopardize your reward. Beyond all else, I personally don't want to view people as dollar signs. I don't see dollar signs. I don't want to. Your giving is between you and God. More importantly, you should recognize these last chapters have not been our church bringing up money again and again. This is Jesus Christ talking about money. And the function of the church is merely to draw attention to what what he and the balance of Scripture have said concerning money. Uh, This is good for you. It's good for me. Jesus fashions his teaching for our good. So when he confronts this man's just damaging infatuation uh, with self and with money, uh, the record in Mark chapter 10 says Jesus... When he did so, he looked on this man with love. He was concerned about him. He, he loved him. To, to, uh, to permit him to depart without providing him an opportunity to correct self, correct the core corruption in his heart, that would have been unloving. That would have been unloving. Uh, the same could be said of any church that doesn't expose sin in its, in its boundless manifestations. As we see here, uh, the person ultimately will walk away. But for Jesus to not kindly, yet firmly, confront sin so as to provide an opportunity to correct, it's, it, it's ultimately unloving to do such a thing. It's unloving to let people walk away in their sin. Uh, and I believe if you were to ask any person or family in this church, you would just talk to them on the side who regularly attends, I'd venture to suggest that, that most would tell you that concerning money, I, I know this is true for me, concerning money, they've gained a lot of confidence and contentment over the last several months listening to what Christ has said. When his sheep hear God's voice, we follow him. We become contented. We are satisfied when we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. It's good for us. Meanwhile, you know, an overabundance of wealth and property has never provided satisfaction to anyone. 
The same holds true of the man in our story today. And with all of that said, you, you'll probably be relieved to hear that the, the fact that this passage today isn't primarily about money. Not primarily. Uh, to take this as a supply and a universal principle about how each person should uh, view money, that, that would go far astray. We're, we're not all to, required to sell all of our property and distribute it to the poor. You know, that has been a faulty conclusion uh, over time, over centuries, for many monks who, who have just uh, given up all possessions thinking that it would make them more spiritual. Some are suspicious that having property of any kind is inherently sinful. If it were, then the poor, who we distribute it to, would have to again turn around and redistribute it to others. Be a perpetual cycle of just hot potato. Here, you take it. No, no, that's sinful. You take it. Who would own the land? Who would sell the machinery that harvests the crops? Who would own the supermarket and deliver the food for everyone else to get? You know, some would say, well, we just take this out of the hands of the people and, and we put it in the hands of the government. That's not a good idea. That is not a good idea. No, throughout Scripture, uh, personal property rights of working believers, they're repeatedly endorsed, they are defended. Uh, this passage is not, not teaching us that it is spiritually ideal to just liquidate everything quickly and, and then go live uh, somewhere in a monastery far away. Someone has to own the monastery. Someone has to bring the food to the people to eat. Instead, what we find in Luke chapter 18, it's, it's an account of a very moral man. Outwardly moral. Seemingly has everything in his life together, but nonetheless remains somehow dissatisfied. He's uncertain. He's uncertain. Wait until he departs. He's going to be really dissatisfied once he departs. He's going to leave even less satisfied. In fact, verse 23 says that he departs very sad. Which will reveal the idolatry in his heart. Walking away sad, folks, that's not the experience that you should have after you've had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Regrettably, Jesus' disciples will discover there are people who enjoy talking about spirituality, about the law, about being a morally good person, until it intersects with their money. Then you've gone too far. The identity of this man, it's uncertain. Verse 18 describes him as a ruler of some kind. Uh, it's the record of Matthew that tells us that he is young. Uh, all three synoptic gospels put together in their description, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all say that he was very rich, that he owned very much property and therefore this man is almost universally referred to as the rich young ruler right that's what we know him as he's the rich young ruler a ruler of what we don't know he could have been a ruler of a synagogue that's been proposed others speculate that he was a member of the sanhedrin a religious court i seriously doubt it i really do because he publicly approaches Jesus displaying this great admiration. 
before everyone. Mark 10, 17 says, he ran up to Jesus. He, he knelt before him. You know, I, I find this very unlikely if he were one of the Pharisees. If he were a member of that sect of the religious establishment. You know, if you remember, the Pharisees and Sadducees so opposed Jesus that in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, himself a Pharisee and part of that sect, he had to approach Jesus by night. He didn't want to offend all of his colleagues. The Greek term for ruler, it's it's a general term. Luke is the only one of the three Gospels that use it to describe this man. Matthew and Mark don't find it essential. Uh, So I I don't read any more into the title personally, other than it implies that in his brief life, as a young man, he'd already achieved some authority. He'd already moved up the ladder. He was successful. He had acquired a massive amount of wealth. All three Gospels emphasize that. He was clearly very religious. So his culture would have recognized him as having been one who really excelled in life. He really had it together. He was accomplished. Onlookers would have concluded that he lacked nothing. Jesus is going to reveal that he lacks one thing. One thing. It's what he comes searching for. His seeking out of Jesus initially causes the reader of the gospel to assume that he's on the right path. You know, th- this guy must be on the right path. He, he runs up to Jesus. He, he kneels before him. He calls Jesus good teacher. You know, he's a perfect prospect, apparently. He's a seeker. You know, many churches would refer to him as that. Well, this guy's surely a seeker. The narrative reveals he's concerned about morality. He's a very moral man. You know, if this had occurred after Pentecost, he would have been viewed as just a really great prospect to any local church. Perfect addition. We might expect him to quickly ascend to leadership, perhaps even serve in the capacity of an elder, a church leader. You know, money is often cited as an admirable quality for that, by the way. Uh, When I was in the mission, working in missions, we had different, uh, I was involved with an association, loosely, that helped us with fundraising. And this is beyond the local church. This wasn't my local church. But uh, they, they pretty much insisted that we form a board, an advisory board, in order to get some men around you, in order to boost fundraising. And they said, make sure that your guys in your advisory board have money. Can you imagine that? That's the primary quality that you want us to look for. Sure, they wanted them to be Christians, but make sure that they have money. You know, he seems to have all the prerequisites, this man, qualifications that people search for, but he lacks one thing. He lacks one thing. First Timothy 3.3 says, An overseer must be free from the love of money. Got to be free from it. Can't love money. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Look with me at a question. A question that he comes with in verse 18. Luke says he arrived questioning Jesus, saying this, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Immediately we should sense some red flags here. Both the verb I do and inherit, what shall I do to inherit are in the Greek active 
tense. That is in contrast to a passive tense. Active, you're actively involved. A passive tense, you are not. If you're passive, it's something that's done to you. Uh, Most of us view an inheritance as something that we as an heir will will receive passively, right? That's that's the first inclination we get. It's, It's something that we'll receive passively at some point in the future. That's not what's implied here. His question implies the young man seeks to act in a correct manner to obtain the object of his desire. In in this case, eternal life. In this case, salvation. In this case, heaven. You know, we might better understand if we consider how some benefactors that that have a will will set conditions. There will be preconditions for their children, their grandchildren, their heirs on behavior. You will receive your inheritance if you behave this way. If you do not behave and bring honor to the family, you can be cut out of the inheritance. Works that way sometimes with monarchies. If they, if they um, bring a bad reputation, they can be cut out of their position and out of the will. So it depends somewhat on them. You receive it uh, on maintaining a specific behavior. So this man perceives that there are some conditions. That's what he has concluded. Set conditions to achieve before receiving eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Folks, believe it or not, most people think this way outside of Christianity. Most do. This is a very common way of thinking. I get to heaven if I behave in a certain way. It's works-based. What must I do? Which magnifies, by the way, the contrasting polarity between Christianity and every other cult and religion in the world. Really, a, a contrast that is apparent virtually every other major religion in the world. Their views of salvation hinge on meeting certain criteria along the way. In Hinduism, they insist that you will be reincarnated into another life form either up or down the food chain, depending upon how you behave in this life. It's up to you. It's contingent on you. Buddhists behave uh, and believe much the same way. You know, it's karma. You will eventually get what you deserve. That's their religion. In Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, salvation is based on merited works. And you can never know You can never know whether or not you truly have achieved enough in this life to deserve salvation in the next. That's where this rich young ruler is. Not quite sure. Christianity, folks, it's completely opposite of that. Completely opposite. We know what we have sown in this life. It's sin. That's what we've sown. God's Son endured the punishment that's merited to us on the cross. On the cross. And we receive salvation as a free gift through faith. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. We trust in Him. We get what we don't deserve. Complete opposite. We don't get what we deserve. If we got what we deserve, we would be in hell. Through Christ, we get what we don't deserve. Eternal life through faith in Him. This man's not quite ready to hear that because he he doesn't see himself as so undeserving. 
So instead, Jesus replied, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Amen on that. You know, Jesus, he, he tips his cards right here. Tips the cards over um, 50, uh, Psalm 53, assured Old Testament Israelites. Many places in the Old Testament, as we'll see in a little bit. But Psalm 53, assured Old Testament Israelites, there is no one who does good, not even one. Only God is good while all mankind is inherently sinful. Everybody. Yes, to us Jesus might be making an allusion to his deity here. Some people take that track. Only God is good. You've called me good. Do you notice? I'm God. For us, maybe we catch that. That's all right. But to this man, I believe Jesus is providing him an answer to the test questions that he's about to give to him. He gives him the answer ahead of time. Did you ever like that back in school, by the way? The teacher would go through ahead of time and go through the answers to the question. And you're writing them on your hand and you got them up your sleeve. No, I didn't do that. But wouldn't you know, like to know the answer to the que- test questions before you get them? I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's giving him the test questions, uh, the answer first before the test questions. So he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Matthew 19 adds that Jesus also included that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do you imagine yourself stacking up to that? You know, how would you answer the test questions? Do you pass? You know, remember Jesus, he, he's the teacher. He's at the front of the classroom now. He, he just told the whole class that no one is good. O- only God is good. Only God. I don't know about you, but when I'm confronted with the law of God and the Ten Commandments, the holiness of it, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, I'm compelled to fall on my face and say, you know, I fall short. I'm not very good. That whole deal earlier when I talked about being a good little Lutheran boy, I wasn't that good. I really wasn't that good. I would more likely confess, oh, wretched man that I am, Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news. That's really good news. Romans 7, 24, you know, I've broken all of them. You know the commandments, I broke them. They're not good news. The Ten Commandments are not good news. This is why Scripture says the law, including the Ten Commandments, it serves as our tutor to lead us to Christ. That's what it does, so, so that we may be justified through faith. That's, that's the purpose of the law, to show us that we've fallen short and to seek a solution other than me. Keeping the Ten Commandments is not how we inherit eternal life, because, because no one's good. Nobody is good. But this man says, yeah, I've aced that. The test? Yeah, aced it. Got it all right. I, I, I've kept all these from my youth. You know, what an incredible streak of arrogance when you really think about it. Effectually, he, he, just, he just called Jesus a liar. He said, no, I'm good. 
I've kept all of these. Right after Jesus said, there's no one good. This man insists, no, I'm good. I'm good. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else. Who can understand it? King Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. I don't know if the youth have gotten to this one yet, Gerald, but it's a good one. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Wow. Wow. You know, Jesus had just, has just held up the perfect law of God before this man as a mirror for him to examine himself. We learn that in James. It's a mirror to look at ourselves. And he asks, what is it that you see? What do you see in the mirror? You know, in the law of God, it isn't like one of those funny house mirrors. You go in the carnival and they've got a bent concave to them and you look all funny and everything. Law of God isn't like that. The law of God is pure. It is perfect. It is holy. It doesn't distort our image. We distort our image in our own heart. We think more of ourselves than what we should. Uh, this man just mistakenly thinks that he looks good when he looks at the law. Um, it's, it's, that's insanity. That's insanity. He's wealthy. This is, these are some of his biggest problems here. He's wealthy. He's young. He's already powerful. He's recognized. He's, admir- uh, he's admired. He's accomplished. He's, he's affluent. You know, he, he's just deceived. He's just deceived that he is that good. Um, just as many thriving and successful people become deceived. Deceived by his own pride. You know, so much for the fake prosperity gospel. That is so common today. It just insists that if you're a really spiritual person, everything's going to go right with you. No way. Everything's going to be evidenced. All your spirituality is going to be evidenced through your accomplishments and your achievements in life. That's all a lie, folks. It's all a lie. Uh, We'll look more at wealth and the hindrance that it becomes next week. Look at the next three verses after these, verses 24 through 27. And the hindrance that wealth is to getting through the needle, the eye of the needle, how God has to step in because it's so tough, it'll be good next week. Here, when we look at these passages, as we look at wealth next week, here's what I think this guy is looking for with Jesus, the reason that he approached Jesus. You decide for yourself. You ready? This, This is not clear and obvious in the text. I didn't find this in any commentaries. It's just my hunch, and I could be wrong. He didn't come with the purpose of honoring Jesus. You know, that that whole running up and falling at the knees thing? Kneeling before Jesus, it was all a sham. It was all a sham. He wasn't really searching for advice from Jesus how to get to heaven. He wasn't a seeker at all. And the title that he announced to Jesus, or called Jesus, good teacher, it was pandering to gain favor. He's buttering him up. It was this guy's way. That's the way he did things. This rich young ruler had done the same thing time and time before. In my theory, uh, there's no shortage of other teachers in that day. You, You know that. Traveling teachers, theological teachers, religious sages in Israel. 
There are plenty of Pharisees, scholars who gathered together their own pupils, their own disciples who followed after them that they taught. There were many uh, schools of thought in Israel and many circles that you could become part of and learn in. And displaying a strict adherence to the law and a, and a young man of renowned status, there would have been plenty who would have with great enthusiasm when this man approached them and gave him, uh, gave him a resume. This man, you know, uh, they would have thought, you're right on track. Hey, you kept the law, you're wealthy, you're young. Look at what you've already achieved. You're right on track. No problems at all. He liked hearing that. He liked hearing that from others. That, no, your life's smooth. You've got money. You've got influence. Everything's good. Prosperity gospel. So he sought out Jesus seeking further additional reaffirmation of just how good he was. He'd been told by everybody he was so good. Anybody grew up that way? I grew up that way. You're such a good little boy. You're so good. It's detrimental because you don't see yourself as a sinner. You see yourself as good. In, in Jesus, though, he's, he's looking for reaffirmation of how good he was because he's been told this by so many people. Man, you got all together. You must be a really good person. He's looking for that reaffirmation from Jesus. Well, he picked the wrong guy. He picked the wrong guy. And, and if that's what you're seeking, Jesus is the wrong guy. We're not good. We're not good. Uh, we are all by nature dreadfully sinful people who trust in God, who dispenses mercy and forgiveness and loves us. That's what we worship. That is why, why life is wonderful. That is what's good. God is good. He forgives sinners like us. We rejoice in that. We don't have to hang our head low because, oh, I'm so awful. I'm so awful. That's not the point. It's that God is so good. God is so incredibly good. In a broad indictment of humanity, these are, by the way, all citations. I know you're convinced already, but the reason I'm giving these, they're all citations of the Old Testament that this guy should have known. We find them in Romans chapter 3. Paul gives them to us. But these, these are Old Testament citations this young man should have known. Romans 3 verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what he should have been taught in Saturday school. Because he worshipped on Saturday. Yet when facing the law and God's own Son, Jesus Christ facing him face to face, this young man expresses no conviction of sins. He says, I'm good. I've kept these from my youth. Could I now, Jesus, have your stamp of approval so I can move on? Because he wasn't planning on staying with Jesus. And in verse 22, Jesus responds, and this is very important. Mark 10, 21 reveals that when saying these words, Jesus felt a love for him. 
loved him. Christ being divine perceives the heart, the heart of this man. He puts the finger right on the nerve of this young man, the man's problems. You and I can't see the heart. We understand that. Christ can. But when sin has become revealed as manifest in in someone you know, it's been evidenced, outwardly evidenced. Uh, It's never loving to just simply give them a pass and to not address it. But it is... It is important to kindly but firmly tell them the truth. You know, we find in the next few verses here, this particular man's problem is money. We aren't going to get to it all today. But his problem is money. It's become his idol. So Jesus steps in to reveal that to him. Uh, For some people it's gambling. For others it's alcohol. For for still more, uh, it's hatred. Some are still living in sexual fornication, whatever it may be, whatever it is, Scripture confronts it. And and Scripture confronts us. So when, just for example, when when that daughter or granddaughter comes to you, Grandma, Grandpa, and says, you Grandma, Grandpa, you know, if you love me, you you will understand that I'm in a live-in relationship and accept the fact that me and my boyfriend are living together if you love me. And, and since she knows you're a Christian, she'll probably, or he'll, perhaps he will quote a little scripture and say, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love's not easily angered, grandma. They might even pull out the ESV version which says, Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It keeps no record of wrongs, right? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, right, Grandma? This is the point. The Grandma pulls out her Bible, big lettered. She's got her glasses on, you know, the big thick ones that you look in, and that, that does distort an image, doesn't it? I know my grandma had them. This one, grandma pulls out what she just cited as a text. 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, let's do that. Let's look, because you're going to run it. This is important. This is very practical, because you're going to run into this. I have. I have multiple times. This is the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's start back at verse 4, because this is what always gets quoted to us. What is love? Now you'll know where to turn. Love is patient, verse 4. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. No record of wrongs. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. That's how you address someone who's in sin. They say, but don't you love me? Yeah, we do. That's the reason that we're talking to you about the sin in your life. Kindly, kindly. You tell them, no, you can't use the spare bedroom. There's a motel down the road if you must. 
It's not loving to overlook the truth Jesus finds with this young man. Jesus loves this man enough to shoot straight, and then the young man, he can decide to remain or to walk away. That's up to them. So Jesus makes his grand finale. He says, so so you actually think you're good? Really, you think you're good? When I already assured you, Scripture assures that you're not. Verse 22, this is love. One thing you still lack, says Jesus, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Puts his finger right on the nerve. You know, Jesus, he was the perfect person to deal with this issue and this man. Perfect. Young man could not turn around and reply, Oh yeah? Why don't you distribute all that you own and give it to the poor? Jesus would say, Done. Done. Jesus could reply, Do you want to know your real problem? Jesus could say, You think you're me. You think you're sinless. Only Christ is sinless. And only God is good. So Jesus, Jesus responds, You're not me. You're not me. Um, because if I had your wealth, I'd give it away. Because Jesus could say, I'm not of this world. And this world is not my home. I'm passing on through. I'm just here for a little while. You could tell the young man, you approached me wanting to know how to inherit eternal life. That's what you asked me. It's this simple. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. And Jesus calls for virtually the identical response that he has repeatedly through these last six months. And, or these last six chapters and 12 months that we've been in. Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Take up your cross and follow me. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my name's sake will save it. Will keep it. And this command to give it all away, yeah, it's addressed uniquely to this man. Because money was his idol. Rather than gaining eternal life with Jesus, he became very sad and he departed. You know, Matthew and Mark both say that he he went away grieving. He was so sad. Grieving. He left extremely sad for he was extremely rich. The world was his home. He had embraced the world as his home. And he approached, you know, hoping Jesus would assure him that everything's just okay. Wow, you've been a good person. You're pretty moral, pretty accomplished. Uh... He was wanting Jesus to say, you know, well, you can love God and keep all your money too. Didn't fly. Jesus might have said, he was hoping anyhow, you know, Jesus could say, I don't need it. I don't have anything. Poor don't need it. You know, the church can't even use it. Church isn't about money. Uh, The gospel's free anyhow. Why would we need money? And your spirituality, he could say, never intersects with your money. But that's not what Jesus says. It's not what he says. He told him to give it all away. Give it away. Because 1 John 4.20 tells us, the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And John, 1 John 3.16 tells us, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, 
How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We too don't do this real well. This could be the point where you want to slip out a door, slip, slip out the manual. No, you want to stay. Because when we publicly declare that we love God, that our lives are relatively moral, that I'm a pretty good person, and that I want to keep all my money, the Bible repeatedly says if we actually love God, it will be evidenced through our concern for the poor. The poor brethren specifically, in many cases. Does that make you sad? To know the truth? For Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I can't let this go. Until we, and we've made great strides, until we as a collective church body are tangibly meeting the needs of impoverished Christians somewhere on the globe, we're not being obedient to the will of God. We've been listening for a year now. Six chapters of Luke. And and I'm not really talking about people who think they're poor if they don't have the latest iPhone or want help making their latest new car payment. Uh, That's not what I'm talking about. I understand believers, Christian believers, don't get motivated by stuff like that. It's superfluous. It's malarkey. Um, This country is too wealthy to be healthy in a lot of ways. Most of us don't understand hunger. Most of us don't understand being naked and homeless. I am concerned for Christians who don't have adequate food and covering. I know you are as well. We've talked about this over and over. The wealth in this country, though, is so enormous, we forget there are poor Christians around the world. God has not forgotten them. We look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. This became a corporate campaign of the church to alleviating poverty where it was in other churches. I look forward to 2020. I really do. I think a lot of really wonderful things are going to happen at this church. I haven't had a vision or anything. I don't know the future, but I know you. And I've seen what you've done already in the past. And it's been incredible. It has been incredible. I'm going to ask the men to come forward to serve the Lord's Supper.